Part Three, Chapter Fourteen of Non-Competence and Others by Rose Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Daphne at Violette. Daphne Sandomir was in the train between Cambridge and King's Cross. She was always very busy in trains, as indeed everywhere else. On this journey she was correcting the proofs of the chapter, Chapter 4, Education of the Children, which she was contributing to a volume by seven authors, shortly to appear, to be entitled alliteratively, Is Permanent Peace Possible? and to come to the conclusion that it was. Daphne Sandomir's interest in many things had always been so keen that before the war you could not have picked out one as absorbing her more than a score of others. She had been used to write pamphlets and address meetings on most of them, Eurythmics, for instance, and Eugenics, and the economic and constitutional position of women, and sweated industries, and baby creches, and suggestion healing, and health food, and clean milk, and twenty other of the causes good people have at heart. Then had come the war, an immense and horribly surprising shock, to which her healthy and vigorous mind, not shattered like some, had reacted in new forms of energy. There were in England no ladies more active through that desperate time than Daphne Sandomir and her sister Eleanor Orme, but their activities were for the most part different. Mrs Orme was secretary of a Red Cross hospital, superintended canteens, patrolled camps, relieved and entertained Belgians and dealt them out clothes, was the soul of women's work committees, made body belts, respirators and sandbags, locked up her cellar, bought war loan, and wrote sensible letters to the Times, which usually got printed. Mrs. Sandomir also relieved Belgians, got up repatriation and reconstruction societies for them, spoke at meetings of the Union of Democratic Control, to which society, as has been before mentioned, she did not belong, and of other societies to which she did belong, held study circles of working people to educate them in the principles making for permanent peace, went with a motor ambulance to pick up wounded in France, tried but failed, like so many others, to attend the Women's International Congress at The Hague, travelled round the world examining its disposition towards peace, helped to form the SPPP, Society for Promoting Permanent Peace wrote sensible letters to the Times, which sometimes got printed and sometimes not, articles in various periodicals, pamphlets on peace, education and such things, and chapters in joint books. She had just returned now from her journey round the world, where she had been interviewing a surprising number of the members of the governments of the belligerent and neutral countries, and making a study of such of the habits and points of views of their subjects as could be readily investigated by visitors. Immediately she came from Cambridge, where her home was, and where she had been starting a local branch of the SPPP, and addressing a meeting of the Heretic Society on the attitude of neutral governments towards mediation without armistice. She was a tall, graceful, vigorous person, absurdly young and beautiful, vivid, dark-eyed, clever, and tremendously in earnest about life. She had lately, it seemed lately to herself and all who knew her, 
gone down from Newnham, where she had done brilliantly in the economics tripos, and got engaged to Paul Sandemir, an exiled Pole studying the habits and history of the English constitution at Fitzwilliam Hall. Their married career had been stimulating and storm-tossed. Finally, Paul Sandemir had died in a Warsaw prison, worn out with consumption, revolution and excitement. The extreme energy of the parents had always reacted on the children curiously, discounting enthusiasms and flavouring their activities with the touch of irony which one often notes in the families of one or more very zealous parents. They greatly esteemed and loved their father and mother. To them Daphne was one of the dearest and most beautiful people in the world, if too stimulating. They felt on the whole older than she was, and worldly wise in comparison. 2. King's Cross Daphne, taken by surprise, seized her scattered proofs and crammed them into her dispatch box. Gathering her possessions to her, she turned to see Alex at the carriage door. "'Oh, you dear child! A porter, Alex! Do you see one? Yes, will you take them to a taxi, please?' Relieved of them, she turned with her quick, graceful movement and took the smaller Alex in her arms. Physically, mentally, morally, it was certainly Daphne who had the advantage. They got into the taxi. Daphne said to the porter, "'I think you get eighteen and six now, don't you? Are you married?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'How many children?' Nine, ma'am.' "'Oh, I think not. You're too young for that. Really you are, you know. Let's say four. Well, here's eightpence.' Tell him Spring Hill Clapton. Thank you so much. The taxi sprang up the incline to the street. Of course, said Daphne, frowning over it. Eighteen and six is shocking with these high prices. Goodness only knows when we're going to get it improved. But it's immoral to try and make it up by private subsidies. Is there anything the matter with our driver, child? You seem to be interested in him. I was only trying to discern how many children he's old enough to have, Alex explained. It seems nicer not to have to ask him. It's so embarrassing not being able to believe his answer. I think five is the outside limit, don't you, darling? Daphne put on her pince-nez and regarded the driver's back. Certainly not. Three of that. In fact, I doubt if he's married at all. But never mind now. I want to hear about you, child. Nicholas gave me a rather poor account of you when he wrote the other day. He seemed to think this Clapton life has been getting a little on your nerves. Oh, I don't think so. I'm all right. Daphne regarded her consideringly. Nerves? Yes, you oughtn't to have any at your age, of course. No one needs at any age. You should do eurythmics. You'd find it changed the whole of life. Gave it balance, coherence, rhythm. I find it wonderful. You must certainly begin classes at once. I don't think I've time, mother. I'm going to the art school every day. I think you should make time. I hadn't much time while I was on my travels, if you come to that, but I made some to practice my eurythmics. I knew how important it was to keep fit and balanced and healthy, and that I should never be much use in influencing all those people I interviewed, so reasonable and delightful they mostly were, Alex, and simply longing for peace, I must tell you all about it, unless I kept my own poise. It's the same for you. 
you'll never be any use at painting or anything else while you're mentally and physically incoherent and adrift that's one thing settled eurythmics and the other is you must leave this pansy or violet or whatever it is at once of course and we'll take a flat what about those frampton tucker people of course i know they're hopelessly dull and ordinary i've met emily frampton very seldom but quite often enough a kind little mediocrity the widow of a rather common man of business lawrence frampton married her for some incomprehensible reason of his own people do sometimes he took her to oxford with him and only survived it a year they lived at summertown her two girls were quite little then i believe she was quite happy i met her once when i was staying at oriel she never took in oxford of course it was too many miles outside her ken and she very sensibly hardly attempted to belong or mix but she rather liked summertown society i remember they lived in a house called tula and kept six cats i suppose she hasn't changed at all probably probably not she's very nice and kind oh all that daphne waved it aside of course but too stupid to be tolerable even as a background to your day's work no doubt i'm sorry i've left you there so long child i should have thought of it before but it was all arranged without me and i was too busy to send you advice i don't wonder you look a wreck i don't said alex and cousin emily's not bad she's always giving me hot milk gallons of it an ovaltine to make me fat she says she's awfully kind encouraging you to think about your constitution no wonder you're nervy what about the girls oh they're quite good sorts the younger one is good-looking isn't she yes evie is beautiful and jolly and popular kate goes to church and does parish work and reads the daily thrill aloud in the evenings evie has young men her chief one just now is at the front he's a gordon of gordon's jams that sink of iniquity the girl can have no principle but jam is going to be nationalised very soon i trust like many better things i hope so it richly deserves it another thing alex you must start health food i'm going to help linda durrell to start a health and thrift food shop you know linda's terribly unbusinesslike of course so many people are if you come to that and so many people don't eat the right things at the right moments that man nicky lives with now who stayed with us he never seems to have the faintest notion of healthy feeding goes out every morning before breakfast without an apple or a glass of milk one should always begin the day with an apple alex remember that but parsons are hopeless of course such insane ideas about this world not mattering as if it wasn't the only one we've got i've no patience with the religious people can't think why nicky lives with one of them though mind i like this mr weston himself he's quite sound on most points of importance and intelligent too i've been on sweated industries committees with him and i believe he's doing good work for women's trade unions perhaps he'll change his mind about this church business when he's older i don't believe he will it seems to mean rather a lot to him doesn't it to him it's the way of jogging the world on as committees are to you my dear i detest committees most of their members are too stupid and tiresome for words individually 
and their collective incompetence is quite unthinkable. But what other way is there in this extraordinarily stick-in-the-mud world? Alex shook her head. Indeed, she didn't know. She felt helpless to give the world any sort of jog out of its mud, by any means whatsoever. Daphne caught the blank look of her eyes, and suddenly put her strong arm round the thin, small body. "'My poor baby, you must get strong, you know, and happy. No one needs to be ailing or depressed if they'll just say to themselves, "'I'm going to be well and strong, and to stand up to the world. I'm not going to give in to it.' I am the master of my body and soul. I said that when our darling died. I kept on saying it, and I came through on it. There was too much to do to give way. There is still. We've got to be strong women, for our own sakes and the world's. Especially we who have the brains to be some use if we try. The poor old world needs help so very badly just now with all the fools there are who hinder and block the way. You and I have both got to help, Alex. There is so much to get done. Daphne, holding her close, lightly kissed the thin fingers she held. Alex thought, Mother is splendid, of course, but she's bigger than I am and stronger, and she hardly ever feels ill, and she doesn't know how Paul died, and she's not in love with Basil, and didn't tell him so, and I believe she's so keen and busy that she doesn't have time to think about the war, except about how to stop it. Perhaps that's the way, to be thinking only how to stop it and prevent another. Is that the way? Alex became aware, from the clasp of Daphne's hands on hers, their firm light pressure, full of purpose, that Daphne was willing her to health and happiness, trying, in fact, suggestion. Daphne believed in health suggestion as well as health food. She belonged to societies for promoting both. She had often in the past made health suggestions to Alex, but Alex had not always taken them. At the present moment Alex, overcome by the contrast between her mother's undying hope and purpose for her and her own inability to justify them, giggled weakly in the sudden way she had. "'I'm sorry, darling,' she apologised. "'No, I'm not hysterical, only footling. "'I'm sorry I'm such a rotter and no credit to you "'and no use to the world. "'But I'm all right, really, you know. "'I don't need healing a bit.' "'Daphne held her from her, scrutinised her critically and said, "'You're suffering from hyperesthesia. "'How many cigarettes are you smoking a day?' Nine. "'No, I'm too young for that, like the porter. Let's say three. "'Oh, I don't know. I don't count, really. Quite few. "'Cousin Emily doesn't really like it much. "'She and Kate don't smoke at all, and Evie's only just learning. "'We're not a vicious household. "'Our chief excesses are chocolates and hot milk. "'Well, my outside rule is five, you know, in peacetime, and now it's three. "'I should advise only two for you.' Linda Durrell is for starting and selling health cigarettes, but I won't have it. I think they're too disgusting. One must draw the line somewhere. Is this Clapton? Who lives in Clapton, by the way? I know the Secretary of the Women's Wage Increase Committee does, but who else? Of course people used to in the 19th century. Your great-grandfather did. And Cowper, I think, 
or was it Dr. Watts? Someone who wrote hymns. Those look like good people's houses there. Yes. Oh, bishops live here, and retired generals, and stockbrokers, and thousands of babies, and the Vinnies, and lots of dreadfully common people, Kate says. They all play tennis in the park. This is Spring Hill. So I see. And there's Primrose. Tell him to stop. No, darling, Primrose is someone else's. It's Violette we want. Do remember, mother, because the Primrose people are common, and we don't like being confused. Here we are. 3. They got out. Daphne, having decided without discussion the probable size of the chauffeur's family, judicially tipped him and told him to return for her at half-past five. She then entered Violette and met Mrs. Frampton in the hall. Mrs. Frampton, like Alex and so many others, was much smaller than she was. Daphne had to bend graciously to shake hands. Mrs. Frampton was a little shy of the tall, distinguished, clever, beautiful cousin of her clever, distinguished, little-known second husband. Daphne was, in a manner, a public personage. Most people knew her name. She had for long been at once ornamental and useful, a fountainhead of a perpetually vigorous stream of energies, some generally approved, others regarded by many as harmful, that watered England. But Violette, for good or ill, was outside their furthest spraying. Mrs. Frampton looked from far off, as she had looked at Professor Frampton, at the brilliant, not-to-be-understood energies of a worker in worlds by her not realised. This makes one shy, even if one believes oneself to be a denizen of a superior world, and Mrs. Frampton lacked this consolation. She was a humble person, and knew that Daphne and Professor Frampton had the best of it. They sat in the drawing-room, where there would soon be tea. Daphne looked round the room with an inward gasp. She really hadn't expected it to be quite so bad as this. The Summertown drawing-room, which she vaguely remembered, had been a little like the drawing-room of her cousin Lawrence. She took it all in rapidly, and as if hypnotised, came back to rest on Thou Seest Me and the Watching Eye. My poor child, she thought, I must take her away at once. It's a wonder she's not actually had a creased a nerve, with the wretched nervous system she inherits from Paul, and that eye always watching her. Mrs. Frampton, meanwhile, was amiably talking, nervous but pleased. It's been so delightful having dear Alex all these months. So nice for the girls, too. We've made quite a little party of young people, haven't we, Alex? And other young people drop in quite frequently. Alex's brother, of course, which is always so very nice. He's wonderfully clever, isn't he? And that pleasant Mr. Doy, who lost his finger. I'm sure we quite miss him now he's gone back to the army again. And friends of my girls, and friends of Alex's. Often we're quite a party. It keeps us all quite cheerful and merry, even in these dreadful days, doesn't it, Alex? Yes, said Alex. Only this child works so hard at her drawing and painting all day, she doesn't get much time for play. I'm sure they work them too hard at these art schools. She looks quite overdone and poorly, don't you think so, Mrs. Sandermere? Oh, she'll be all right directly, said Daphne, 
who didn't approve of discussing people's poor health in their presence, thinking it made them worse. "'It's mostly nerves and fancy, I expect,' she added, giving a light pat to Alex's arm. "'Shouldn't be given away to. I expect you've been spoiling her.' "'No, I haven't. No, indeed.' Mrs. Frampton was pleased. "'I have thought she looked thin and below par often, and I've made her take lots of milk, and that nice ovaltine, and even malt and cod liver oil, but she wouldn't go on with that. There's a very nice stuff that's being advertised everywhere now, fatine, and I want her to try that. Oh, Alex was always thin. I don't believe in worrying with medicines. We mustn't make her sorry for herself by talking about her like this.' "'That's Evie, isn't it? "'She doesn't look as if she needed medicine anyhow. "'I should like to have her for an advertisement "'in the windows of my health food shop.' "'Evie was followed by Kate, Florence and tea. "'Daphne thought Kate and the teacups both deplorable. "'Kate had been going round her district with parish magazines. "'She hadn't succeeded, district visitors never do, "'in collecting all the pennies for them.' and told her mother which persons hadn't paid. And, of course, that Mrs. Fittle in Paradise Court lay low and pretended to be out as usual. I expect she was... Kate pursed her lips, which meant drunk. Mrs. Frampton nodded intelligently. The Clapton people are terribly difficult to deal with, Kate explained to Daphne. Dreadfully ungrateful, too, very often. The clergy and workers may do anything for them, but it's all no more than what's their due and no thanks, only grumbles. Do you find them like that in Cambridge? Which was the town in which Daphne, if she had one anywhere, presumably had a district. Not a bit, said Daphne briskly. The idea of expecting me to find anything so commonplace was her inward comment. This girl is the worst of the lot. Kate does a great deal of parish work, Mrs. Frampton explained. She's quite busy always with church things. Yes, Daphne was vague, hiding how much she disapproved of church things. Now, I'm afraid I'm used to a rather different sort of service from those Kate attends, Mrs. Frampton continued. I'm old-fashioned, I know. Kate's church goes a touch too high for me. Something in her visitor's face, a certain blankness, suggested to her that probably Daphne knew no difference between high and low, but condemned both with impartial unfairness. She remembered that Alex hadn't been brought up to go to any sort of church. Alex, being of a later generation, had indeed a fairly open mind on these matters, but Daphne, the product of a more pronounced and condemning age, rejected with emphasis. The Christian religion as taught in churches was to her pernicious, retrograde, the hampering relic of a darker age. Some glimmering of this attitude filtered through to Mrs. Frampton and flustered her. She added, But of course we can't all think the same way about things, can we? I hope you enjoyed your trip round the world, Mrs. Sandermere. Very much, thank you. You visited the Balkans, didn't you? That must have been very alarming and wild. I'm sure it was wonderfully brave of you to go there with all this upset and all the natives so unsettled. I'm afraid I shouldn't have had the courage. The upset, said Daphne, was less advanced than it is now when I was there. I had a most interesting time. 
but not really, in the main, suitable to tell Mrs. Frampton about. So she rapidly selected. The Bulgarian babies! You never saw anything so pleasant. You'd love them, Mrs. Frampton. You should go there some time. And their teeth come through when they're about six weeks old, for some reason. It's just as well, because their ideas about milk and cleanliness are most behindhand. I talked to a sort of mother's meeting about it, but I don't think they even began to understand. I expect my Bulgarian wasn't idiomatic enough. Oh dear, the dirt of those infants! Fancy! It does seem a wickedness not to keep little babies clean, doesn't it? There's one at a house in this road, Primrose, and I'm sure it goes to one's heart to see the way it's kept. Kate said fastidiously, those Primrose people aren't nice in any way, I'm afraid. They are some very regrettable people come settling round here lately. People one can't dream of knowing. It's a great pity. People will settle, won't they? Daphne said vaguely. It's better, perhaps, than being unsettled like the Balkan people. Daphne never punned except in absence of mind, rightly believing the habit to rise from weakness of intellect. But she was thinking now not of Clapton, nor of the Balkan people, but of an address she was giving that evening to a meeting of the NUSS on her recent experiences, and which she had only inadequately prepared. She pulled herself together, however, and became charming, attentive and intelligent for the rest of tea. "'And what do you think of the United States?' Mrs. Frampton inquired. "'Will they come in, do you think, or won't the President let them, whatever occurs?' "'You met the President, didn't you? How did he strike you?' "'Oh, delightful! Like most governments, they're nearly all charming personally, I believe, so much stronger as a rule in the heart than in the head. They mean so much good and do much harm, poor dears.' A curse seems to dog them. They're the victims of an iniquitous and insane system, and they lack foresight and sound judgment so terribly for all their good intentions. You would scarcely say the Kaiser had good intentions, Mrs. Frampton suggested dubiously. Daphne said, I don't know him, but I'm told he has all sorts, good and bad, like other mischievous people. We all know anyhow where good intentions pave the way to, said Kate, more epigrammatic than usual, so that Mrs. Frampton said, Hush, dear, and added, He'll have to face the consequences of action some day when he's called to give account of his life. Perhaps we oughtn't to forestall his condemnation, poor man. Daphne said, Indeed, I'm quite sure we ought. Condemnation will be singly little use at the moment you refer to. And then, because that moment would be a fruitless and indeed most unsuitable topic of conversation between her and Mrs. Frampton, she left it and talked about flats in town, a subject which she and Violette regarded from standpoints very nearly as far sundered as those from which they contemplated the last judgment. After tea, Mrs. Frampton said she and Kate and Evie would now go away and leave Daphne and Alex alone together, which they did. The door shut behind them, and Daphne passed her long, capable hand over her forehead and shut her eyes for a moment. "'My dear child, what you have been through! It must end at once. 
so kind and so unthinkably trying no wonder oh well never mind you'll soon be all right now do they know anything about anything that matters no quite obviously not i'd rather they didn't mother i don't like the things that matter i've been quite comfortable comfortable with that eye nonsense child the idea of our having such relations even by marriage lawrence frampton was really too queer i've often wondered whether his head wasn't a little going when he did it he had been peculiar in several ways quite suddenly voted conservative which years was it now i think myself life had tired him people wanted to abolish greek in responsions and so on and he had some worries in his college and private money difficulties too i believe oxford people are so extravagant sometimes so he fell back on a little cushiony wife as one might on to a pillow and died quietly soon afterwards most tragic really such a brilliant fellow he was now there's my taxi back again i'm going first to nicky's then to dine at the club with francie claverhouse before addressing the n u w s s by the way i'm fearfully out of temper with them have you been following their policy lately they've been criminally weak on conscription we shall have to have a split as usual good-bye darling run and fetch your cousin emily to say good-bye to me no only your cousin emily i can't speak to kate she's the epitome of all the ages of the drab and narrow feminine and evie is immoral and carries on with gordon's jam it isn't right that you should be here none of them have any principles while she talked daphne was collecting her bags papers and furs with her quick graceful decisive movements alex watched her feeling as she sometimes did in her mother's presence as if she sucked up all the ozone in the air and left none for her they found mrs frampton in the hall full of shy and beaming kindness daphne took her hand and looked down on her cordially i must be flying i'll look in to-morrow if i may good-bye and thank you so much for being good to the child the narrow kate and the immoral evie appeared in the background and daphne had to shake hands with them after all before escaping into the taxi four violette watched her drive away up spring hill evie thought how handsome she was and how well she wore her clothes kate was not quite certain she wasn't a touch fast alex thought how jolly it must be to be like mother so certain and so strong mrs frampton thought she seemed so nice and clever but a little alarming perhaps and said to alex your mother seems wonderfully well and busy i expect she's always quite full of plans and occupation and interests isn't she yes said alex end of chapter 14